The air is stifling. It's almost unbearably hot down here, in this cramped and dingy walkway. Mina Montessario's heavy boots clang on the black iron grating, which seems somehow impervious to rust. The passageway is lined with tangled copper pipes that radiate heat. Mina is sweating before she's taken a dozen paces. These are the underpipes, then. The hidden plumbing, heating and sewage system that lies beneath the city of Kairas. The home of the pipe runners. The passageway angles downwards for a stretch, then levels off. At the bottom of the incline, it widens into a small chamber. The pipes here cover the ceiling and the walls, and there are all manner of dials, pressure gauges and valves. To one side is a large box, perhaps a metre to a side. A storage crate, Mina speculates. Perhaps some sort of supply cache. She takes a curious-looking monocle from a breast pocket that whirs and rotates as she fits it to her eye, the lens telescoping out and magnifying her view as she begins to study the box, trying to determine how such a thing might open and what it can tell her of her quarry. As she looks closer, she's surprised to see a series of vents around the top edge, and more surprised still when a face appears from within, wide-eyed and desperate, and a cracked voice beseeches her. Please, please, you got to get me out of here. Hurry, they're coming back. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning, the following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer. Mina visited the necropolis between the temple to Bran, hoping to find out more about the deal the machine cultists had struck to secure infernal powder. But a public ceremony dashed all hope of finding clues. Instead, she was forced to follow her other lead and descend into a deep, water-filled shaft in pursuit of the suppliers of those barrels, the pipe runners. Surviving an underwater attack from two fire snakes, she made it into the underpipes and set off in search of her quarry. This is no storage crate, Mina realises with lurching horror. It's a cage. The pipe runners have imprisoned this man in a space so small he can barely move. Whatever positive preconceptions she might have had of these people, they are shattered now. This cruelty is unspeakable. It's all right, let me see if I can get this open, Mina chatters, as much to calm her own nerves as his, as she tinkers with the lock. Who are you? What happened to you? 
The man's fingers poke through the vents. My, my name is Cadmus. Please, please let me out. The lock proves no match for her delicate tools and dexterous fingers. It springs open, and Mina levers the top of the cage open. She reaches out to Cadmus, then recoils as the unbearable stench hits her. Cadmus's fingers reach up over the lid of his cage, but he seems incapable of moving. Mina activates her breathing bubble once more, and mercifully the foul smell cuts off. It's okay, give me your hands. The man that emerges from the cage is horrifying to behold. He is emaciated, caked in filth, his tattered robes near black with grime, and his beard and hair are long, tangled and matted. Every movement appears to be agonising. From the look of him, he must have been down here for months. He's in a bad way, and that's just physically. Keys alone know what this experience has done to the poor man's mind. That's it. Take it gently. Cadmus, freed of his prison, takes a long, despairing look into Mina's eyes, and then he runs for it. He only makes it three or four tottering paces before his legs give way from under him and he falls, crying out in pain as muscles, long unused, go into painful cramp. Mina is at his side in an instant. Cadmus, I'm, I'm here to help you, do you understand? I'm going to get you out of here. I'm going to get you away from these people, but you're going to have to trust me. Cadmus closes bloodshot eyes for a long moment then lets out a long, shuddering sigh. Water, he croaks. Food! Mina could kick herself for not offering them immediately. Oh, of course, I have both in my pack. Here, take it slowly. She waits patiently as Cadmus greedily devours her rations, turning the situation over in her mind. She is desperate to investigate the pipe runners and how they're involved in the supply of illicit infernal powder but this man is clearly in no fit state to proceed. Left alone, he will probably die, or perhaps worse, get captured again. She has to get him out of here, and quickly. If he's to be believed, the pipe runners will be back soon, and they need to be gone before that happens. But there's only one way out that she knows of, and that involves ascending through perhaps 150 feet, through hundreds of thousands of gallons of water with only enough breathing apparatus for one. And she doesn't think Cadmus can make it alone. You said they were coming back, Cadmus. Is that right? She asks. Do you know how long we have? The bearded man nods, still chewing. An hour, perhaps two. His hands are shaking. This all looks to be too much for him. They need to get to safety. But how? An insane idea occurs to her. An idea so dangerous and stupid that she almost laughs out loud. If she could open both chamber doors, she could flood these pipes, then simply climb up the rungs. She dismisses the idea almost at once. There must be 800,000 gallons of water in that pool shaft. Even assuming she could open both doors at once, the water would take several minutes to drain, during which time they would still have to avoid drowning with the added complication of being blasted with water under several tons of pressure. Not to mention the fact that the resulting flood would likely destroy large sections of the much-needed underpipes, 
and would almost certainly result in the deaths of who knew how many pipe runners. She's seen firsthand the results of a stupid plan executed to perfection, and she wants no more innocent deaths on her conscience. I don't suppose you know a way out of this place, do you? She asks, with little hope. Cadmus shakes his head. That means there's only one thing for it. They're going to have to press on, into the stifling heat and the claustrophobic pipes, in hope of finding a diving suit with which they can make the ascent, or miraculously finding some other way out. She stands and offers Cadmus her hand. Come on then, Cadmus. My name's Mina, and together we're going to get you out of this place. Or die trying. Time to talk about what happened behind the curtain in that scene. As it turns out, quite a lot. Let's start with a brief discussion about skills. D&D has a binary approach to a lot of things. You succeed or you fail. Simple. I try to hit that orc and I roll above its armour class. Great, I hit. I want to pick that lock and I miss the target DC. Well, the door stays closed. And if all the adventure is on the other side of that door, well, that's kind of too bad. Powered by the Apocalypse games take a different tack. There, the math is skewed so that most results end up as a weak hit rather than a miss or a strong hit. That means it's a success, but with consequences. Flat-out success or flat-out failure is usually narratively less interesting. Games like Apocalypse World or Powered by the Apocalypse adjacent games like Ironsworn do this, and it's the driving force behind the way that the stories emerge in those games. I tend to miss that when I play more traditional RPGs like D&D. And so I've decided to trial something for a while, which I think would work perfectly well in a group game of D&D, and it's also something that I think should suit my solo game just fine as well. Again, this is one of the reasons I love solo RPGs. You get to tinker and experiment with the rule systems, adjusting and hacking on the fly to suit your needs. In Dungeon World, when a player fails or makes a weak hit, the GM gets to make one of 12 GM moves. My plan is to port that list, kicking and screaming, into 5e. If I fail at a skill check, I'll give myself the option to succeed, but with a consequence. As you can in Fate, for example. There are optional rules similar to this on page 242 of the DMG. The greater I fail the check by, the harsher the interpretation of the consequence will be and the nature of the consequence will be determined by up to two rolls. Firstly, a d12 to see which GM move is made. For example, reveal an unwelcome truth, or use up their resources, or put someone in a spot. And then, if the detail is not immediately obvious, a description roll on the mythic table to provide a prompt as to the nature of that move. So, in this last scene, Mina attempted to intuit some information about the pipe runners by examining their supply cache. She failed her investigate check by two, even with the addition of her guidance cantrip, which in this case took the form of her magical monocle. And so I elected to succeed, but with a consequence. For the investigation success, I rolled a mythic description of healthily harsh. That had me puzzled until I rolled for the consequence. I rolled a GM move of show signs of an approaching threat and a description of imprison innocent. 
Combining those two results gave me Cadmus. And completely out of the blue, Mina had someone to rescue and, just maybe, a possible sidekick. See how much more interesting that success with a consequence was than a straight no. I mentioned back in session zero that I'd be introducing a sidekick when the opportunity presented itself using the rules laid out in Tasha's. There are a few benefits to doing this. First off, it helps provide a better spread of skills to my lone PC. They can play second fiddle to my PC in terms of story importance and mechanical complexity, but I can plug skill gaps where my PC is lacking, particularly if I chose to select an expert and use the right base stat block. It will also help address the action economy issue that I face as a lone PC. And, of course, a sidekick would give me someone to talk to, which won't hurt. Sadly, Cadmus is not in great shape. A random check reveals he's been in that cage for months, which, even being super generous, means he has multiple levels of exhaustion. I decide on four. He has disadvantage on ability checks, attacks and saves, and his movement and hit point maximum are halved. Still, he may prove helpful. Let's wait and see. To determine his actions, I took a look at the NPC behaviour check rules in the Mythic Variations 2 book, but I'll be honest, they made my tired old brain hurt, and so thankfully I found a simplified version of those rules in Mythic Magazine Volume 1, so I'll be trying those out to determine how Cadmus acts going forward. By the way, fun fact, a 150 foot high, 30 foot diameter cylinder holds 793,150 US gallons of water and would take approximately 200 seconds to drain through a 6 foot by 3 foot aperture, emerging at under around 3.3 tonnes of pressure. Many thanks to my friend Russell for carrying out the necessary applied calculus. Whoever said RPGs weren't educational? For Mina to work all of that lot out in her head just goes to show how gifted an artificer she is. She does have an intelligence of 18, after all. But I've been rambling on for long enough. Let's add Cadmus to our character list and rescue Cadmus to the thread list, as well as taking our chaos factor back up to five. It's time to find out how Mina and Cadmus are getting on. Mina leads the way, stopping every now and then to help her stumbling, feeble companion along. The effort of the journey leaves Cadmus short of breath, and Mina is worried too much noise might betray their presence, and so they travel in silence. The oppressive heat gradually abates, the air growing first cooler, and then positively chilly. Cooling pipes, Mina realises, noticing droplets of condensation coating the ducts and piping overhead. And that's why she fails to spot the slender tripwire. She blunders into it, and a catch overhead is released, sending a heavy steel blade plummeting towards her. She hurls herself desperately forward, but the blade leaves a brutal gash across her thigh. She curses, reaching into her pack to try and find something to bind the wound, but Cadmus puts out a restraining hand. Let me see, he says, and for the first time his voice sounds calm assured. The wound is clean, but deep, and bleeding freely. Cadmus holds a hand a few inches from it, and in a reverent tone recites a familiar invocation. 
Thrice blessed Ankara, bringer of life, may you hear your servant's call. Light, pure and soothing, flows from his outstretched hand, and the wound begins to close, but the light starts to fade before it is fully mended. Mina stares at Cadmus in astonishment. Looking closer, she realizes that his tattered, filthy robes must have once been orange. You're a devotant. Cadmus nods sadly. The light in his hand fades away altogether. A most tranquil devotant of the thrice-blessed Ankara, yes. He takes the bandage Mina had tugged from her pack and binds the wound gently and expertly. So what, the, the pipe runners kidnapped you? Mina asks, as this time Cadmus offers her a hand up. He's moving a bit more easily now, she notices. They snatched you off the street and brought you down here to be their captive healer? Cadmus shakes his head. No, though I almost wish they had. The truth is, I, I came down here of my own volition. The fault lies with me just as much as them. My order had a path mapped out for me, you see, an assignment to a great house. I had other ideas. Mina nods. Though most of the order are typically nomadic, she is very familiar with the practice of devotants being assigned to prestigious institutions such as the noble houses or the guilds. They serve as resident healers, and in turn, the devotant order is well paid. Cadmus continues, eyes downcast. I felt I had a greater purpose, a more noble calling than to be at the beck and call of some pampered princeling. I determined to walk the underpipes, offering aid to those in need. I've had a long, long time to consider my hubris. How could you have known? Mina asks. I'd always thought the pipe runners were, were decent people, noble even. How could you have known they'd turn out to be such monsters? Cadmus is about to answer when he's cut off by a hollow, metallic knock reverberating down one of the pipes. His face goes slack with terror as a rhythmic pattern of knocking begins. What is it, Cadmus? What? The healer turns terrified eyes to Mina. They're coming! So, Cadmus turns out to be useful after all. Back in scene 10, there was some information I learned about Cadmus that I didn't share at the end of that scene. I mentioned that I'd rolled healthily harsh as a prompt. Well, that prompt suggested to me that this NPC might be a healer in a bad way, and checking the Fate Oracle confirmed that. Other than briefly touching on Bran, the Deathwalker, we've yet to dig into the established pantheon of this world. I'll let that emerge organically, rather than subjecting you to a massive ecclesiastical info dump. But for now, suffice to say that I have an obvious choice in creating this healer, based on my pre-existing knowledge of the setting. The Chained World is home to a group of monastic worshippers of Ankara, the Lifebringer, and Cadmus is one of them, a healer monk. And so I built Cadmus as a sidekick, Mechanically, I mashed together a sacred stone monk from the 5e adventure Princes of the Apocalypse, 
together with the Spellcaster Healer Sidekick template, and I'm good to go. I've perhaps been a little cheeky in the way that I've built him, none of the spells I've chosen for him are affected by those multiple levels of exhaustion. That said, he'll struggle in a fight. His maximum hit points have been reduced to a measly 11, and so if things do get nasty, my healer might not be around for long. And that's even assuming he stands and fights. Given that I'm using an NPC action generator, it's perfectly possible that our traumatised devotant will simply turn tail and run, leaving Mina to face the music alone. We'd better hope they avoid whoever is knocking at those pipes. I held back on announcing the fact that Cadmus was a healer, because I wanted that to emerge in the narrative first before mentioning it in the commentary. Again, there was no guarantee that Cadmus would volunteer that information. If he decided to keep quiet, I wanted his identity to remain mysterious. The guillotine trap proved the perfect way to introduce his calling. I'd rolled a danger as part of my dungeon exploration, and then a further roll on the perilous wilds danger table had given me a slashing trap. That meant a trip to one of my favourite solo RPG tool sites. Donjon, that's D-O-N-J-O-N. Donjon is up there with the best of the many random generator sites out there, and it was perfect for this task. I went to the 5e trap generator, set the level to 2, the danger level to random, and then scrolled down the list of randomised traps Donjon provided me with until I found a slashing one. Easy. Mina got hit for a chunky 10 hit points of damage, taking her down to 22 of 38 hit points. And I asked the oracle if Cadmus would heal her. As a devotant of the Lifebringer Colossus, I figured this was likely, but I just squeaked by on the dice, rolling a 73, just barely a yes. All that time imprisoned has clearly left him conflicted. It also left him out of touch with Ankara. I rolled a 1 on my healing word die roll, burning a valuable spell slot and only healing Mina for a measly 3 hit points. The next exchange was also largely driven by Mythic. I asked if Cadmus was kidnapped, and I got an extreme no. He clearly decided to come down here of his own free will. And the reason? Neglect plans, Mythic informed me. That sounded as if he'd disobeyed orders and gone rogue. I then asked about his experiences with the pipe runners, but I rolled a double. An event. The event focus here was remote, meaning that whatever was going on, it wasn't here. The characters learned about it remotely. I rolled starting messages as my event description, and figured that tapping messages on pipes was an obvious way people would communicate at a distance down here. And it has the added benefit of scaring the bejesus out of Cadmus, which ramps up the tension a notch. So, whatever Cadmus has to say on the subject of the pipe runners, we'll just have to wait. Until next time. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. 
I include any links mentioned on that site, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any mechanics information. The story will continue in the next episode of Known Adventurer. Thank you for listening.